Monsi, it's good to have you back. Thanks for singing for us as always. <clears throat> I think I oversang my voice, which is not hard to do. But uh, it was just so much fun, you know. I, I just, I love to, like, yeah, it's fun. I still remember, you know, when Karen and I first started this thing, it was, you know, it was me with a CD player and two people out there. And it was just really hard to get some energy going, you know. But um, so when I, when I get to stand up here and sing with Adam and Heather and the others, it's just uh, I, I, my mind's flashing back, you know, and I'm remembering these things. And yeah, it's a, it's a great joy. As some of you know, um, I left a 20-year business career at the age of 42, and I went to seminary. Um, I loved it with all my heart. I tell people all the time they should just take three years off and go to seminary. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a missionary. Just take three years off and go to seminary. You'll love it. It's just fun hanging out with God's people and sitting under people, uh, guys, professors that really know the original language and can just open it up for you. Um, seminary was just a blast for me. And I tell people to just go for the fun of it. Just go for the fun of it. One of the cool things about being in a good Bible-believing seminary are the people, the people that you meet uh, in a seminary like that. You get to hang out with some of the coolest people in the world, uh, men and women of whom the world is not worthy, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38 says. People like Todd and Tara, back then, a young couple in their 20s who sold everything they had, came to seminary, and they left for an Islamic nation as missionaries. I got to meet uh, Clinton and Teresa also in their 20s. They packed up their three infant children, and they went to missionaries uh, to an Islamic nation as well. I got to meet Mark and Carol, a brilliant young man. Uh, they packed up and took their uh, two teenagers and went to Thailand where he was going to teach in a seminary. Uh, I got to meet Danette and Sandra, two single uh, young women uh, in their 20s who headed off to different African nations uh, as missionaries. I got to meet Grant, who was a doctor. He left a very successful and prosperous practice uh, and came to seminary. I got to meet him and his wife, Debbie, young couple in their 30s. Uh, and they took Laura, who was five, and Bethany, who was four, and Hudson, who was one, and they moved to Mongolia. He took his family to Mongolia. And Grant and I used to get together. We used to pray sometimes. And I asked him one morning, I said, Grant, why are you taking your beautiful young family to Mongolia? And he had his Bible in his lap. And he just held it up. And he said, because this is true. And uh, that's a good reason to go to Mongolia. Because this is true. The Word of God. Yes, the, the message of the Bible is utterly fantastic and incredible. I hear it said many times, it's unbelievable. And in one sense, it is unbelievable, the message of the Bible. If we're really understanding what it's saying to us, it is breathtaking. That is God in a manger. It is. It really is. God in a manger. And this is, Grant is right, it's true. This is why ordinary people 
do extraordinary things because they're in awe of the truth of the Word of God. It's true that the eternal, infinite Creator God, who, as we've been talking about the last month or two, effortlessly spoke 20 billion times, 6 trillion, 50 plus billion galaxy universe into existence. As we talked about, as effortlessly as we exhale, God created the cosmos. That is the God who is in the womb of a young woman. Nobody from nowhere. He's in the womb of Mary. That's the God, the eternal, infinite Creator God. He's the God that enters into humanity into a stable and He's lying in a manger. This is the God, this eternal, infinite Creator God. He's the one that's washing the dirty feet of His rebellious and sinful creatures. This eternal, infinite Creator God. He is the God who is arrested and mocked and spat upon and scourged and beaten by His puny little creatures. This is the God, the eternal, infinite Creator God who is nailed to a tree and laid in a grave because He was in love with His Father and with His people. I think theologian J.I. Packer said it as well as it can be said. He said, the more you think about this, the more staggering it is. And if you give five minutes of thought to it, you'll land on your face. I promise you will. Don't ever take the incarnation of God lightly. This is an awesome and unspeakable thing. And that's what you run into in seminary. You run into people that are staggered. As Packer says, they are staggered. They are astonished that this could be true. That God could be like this. That God could love us like this. Men and women who really read their Bibles and really believe their Bibles. And their lives are changed forever. If you really believe it, friends, your life's going to change. If you really believe it. The inescapable result of is a kind of stunned, breathless awe. I love the song that Adam picked out. We are still amazed and we will forever be amazed if we are understanding the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what makes genuine, biblical, authentic, born-again Christianity. It's, it's, people that, it's people who are staggered and they're just trying to live out the awe and the wonder and the worship of it. That's biblical, born-again Christianity. While none of us do it particularly well, we can't help but try. I want to ask you, Christian friend, how can you not fall in love with a God like this? I want to ask you, how can you not seek to love Him back with all of your life? It's the reasonable response to Jesus Christ. My whole life, the only reasonable response to a God like this. That famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it perfectly. He says, real Christians, the real born-again variety, we're not talking about just church members and those who are merely religious, we're talking about real Christians who are born again. He says they're spoiled for the world. I love this, I love this quote. Real Christians are spoiled for the world. What is 
What is Spurgeon saying to us? In essence, he's saying that the world no longer holds any allure for us. We are no longer enamored with the pleasures and delights of the world. They are too small for a real Christian. They are too small. They don't hold a candle to the beauty, the compelling beauty of Jesus Christ. The world is too small for us. We won't run after it. It's too small for us. We've seen the Creator, Redeemer, God, and our hearts are on fire. He has given us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And we are hopelessly in love. It's that whole strangers and alien thing that God writes about in Hebrews 11. It made me think of this episode in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian, you know, he met the evangelist and he had this burden of sin on him. And, 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 and he said, I, felt like, I feel like this sin is going to condemn me. And the evangelist says, well, you need to flee from the wrath to come. And, and he says, but I don't know what to do. And the evangelist points out this gate across the field. And he goes, he goes you need to run to that narrow gate. And do you remember what Christian did? Christian took off running, and he was just running as hard as he could run to that narrow gate. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember what happened? His family and friends came out and yelled at him to stop running. You know, don't take this Christianity too seriously. Don't go off the deep end. Don't be a fanatic. But he was running, and his family and friends says, Hey, come back, Christian. Come back. Come back. Do you remember what Christian did? Christian stuck his fingers in his ears and he kept running. He was shouting, life, life, eternal life. That's what Spurgeon means when he's talking about real Christians being spoiled for this world. There is no allure any longer in comparison to the beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon is right. Real Christians are staggered by His compelling beauty, the, the beauty of the Lord. And we are serious about walking with Him and following Him and obeying Him. The world no longer controls or holds our affection. So, another Christmas is upon us. If we are thinking deeply at all about that manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, uh, we cannot not be staggered by that truth. Eternal, infinite Creator God is lying in a manger. Beloved, I stand here uh, uh, and say to you on the authority of the Word of God that that eternal, infinite Creator God we've been talking about that spoke Genesis 1 into existence, that's the God who's laying in a manger. That's Him. His name is is Jesus Christ. Uh, I spent one whole summer in seminary. took a special course on the Incarnation. We were going to plumb the depths of the Incarnation. We studied what every great biblical theologian in the history of church has ever said about the Word becoming flesh, about the Incarnation. And I learned that while all the sound biblical theologians affirm that Jesus came in the flesh, none of them understand it and none of them can fully explain it. You can't explain the God-man. You can't parse the God-man. All you can do with respect to the God-man is worship Him. With all of your life, all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. That's all that's left to do. This awesome, awesome God. God is in a manger. And what is so staggering, it's not, that, not just that God is in a manger, 
It's why He's in the manger. You know why He's in the manger, right? You guys know why God's in the manger. Because He loves His people. Because He's come to save His bride. He's come to redeem her. He's in love with His people. And he's come to save her. He is the warrior, shepherd, God. And He says, I willingly lay down my life for my people. I love my sheep and my sheep love me. John chapter 10. I seem to go back to John chapter 10 a lot in my preaching, just extemporaneously. But this is the truth of the gospel. You know this, I trust. If you're a Christian, I know you know it. You desperately need Him to be in that manger. You desperately need God to be in that manger because if that's not God in the manger, that's not God on the cross and we are still dead in our sins. We desperately need that awesome warrior shepherd God to be in that manger and he is and I chose Hebrews chapter 2 1 through 7 because we need to understand this text if we're going to have any sense of what of what Christmas is really about we need to understand this text Ephesians chapter 2 1 through 7 uh, let me just read the first three verses again and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the text. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated, with, uh, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you notice in verse 1? We were dead. But what does verse 4 say? But God. Did you notice in verse 2? We were captive to the evil one. But what does verse 4 say? But God. Notice in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. But verse 4 tells us that God has come. But God is in the manger. If you read those first three verses, it's, it's a sobering and terrifying text regarding our true spiritual condition. Yes, dead. Yes, captive. Yes, doomed. But God. But God's in the manger. God is in the manger. Maybe uh, the two most beautiful words ever coupled together in any language, any human language, but God. But God. But God is in the manger. Dead, yes. Captive, yes. Doomed, yes. But God is in the manger. Verse 4, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. The analogy is both correct and vivid. We were 
like Lazarus. We were dead in that tomb. We were spiritually dead. But verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, but God made us alive. God made us alive. Those two beautiful words, John Piper. I was reading some this week. And I read this quote by John Piper about this very issue. Listen to what he says. Piper writes, When God walked past my open grave, instead of turning away from the stench, He said to His Son, I want that mess to live again. Uh, will you die for Him? And Jesus said, Yes. I just love that image, how personal it is. I want that mess to live. Will you die for Him? God supernaturally creates life where there is no life. We've actually been seeing that the last month or two in Genesis chapter 1 where He just speaks complex life forms into existence. It's one of the compelling truths of the Christmas story. Do you remember what Mary said to the angel Gabriel? you remember her response? She said, well, how can this be? How can I have a son? I'm a virgin. And Mary's right. How can a virgin produce a son? By the power of God. Remember what Gabriel said. Nothing is impossible for God. God just speaks life into existence. Mary was a virgin, but God. You remember Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. She was old and barren, but God. And you and me spiritually dead, hopelessly spiritually dead, but God, but God, we were dead, but God, look at verse 2, God says we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In so many words, Satan had us in tow. We were in tow. We were captives to Satan. We were slaves to sin and self and lust and the ways of the world. We were willfully blinded by Satan, the adversary. We were willfully, we had willfully given ourselves over to the bondage of sin. We had willfully uh, enslaved ourselves to the to to lust and vanity. We were as hopeless as Lazarus laying in that tomb. We were as hopeless as a virgin having a baby boy. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, But God is in that manger and He's come to give life to His people. We were captive. But look what verse 6 says, Ephesians chapter 2. He's raised us up with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is one of those verses that theologians like to say it's an already not yet verse. You, saw, you run into these in the Bible. Uh, in God's mind, it's a done deal. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Nothing can change that. You heard uh, Romans chapter 8 read earlier. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's already a done deal in the mind of God. It's not done in time. It's already, but not yet. Our inheritance is sure, protected by the power of God. Nothing can change that. If you're born again today, you'll be born again forever. Nothing can change that. If anyone teaches you that you can lose your salvation, they have wrongly divided the Word of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. God does that born again thing in the hearts of His people and He removes our heart of stone 
and He gives us a, a heart of flesh, we are no longer captives. We are Nike. Does anybody remember John? First John, we looked at last year, and we ran into that great text talking about how uh, Christians, true believers, were, were Nike. Does anybody remember what Nike means? Pardon me? We are conquerors. We are more than conquerors in Christ. You know, the English say it, Nike. That's where they got that word. But the Bible says that Christians, true Christians, are Nike, that God's adopted sons and daughters are conquerors. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, we overwhelmingly conquer. We conquer. We are no longer captives. We conquer. Amen? We are no longer captives to the evil one. We conquer in the power of Christ. You remember what 1 John said? By faith. By faith. We are more than conquerors. God frees His people from the little G God of this world and the spirit of this age. We are no longer captive to Him and His lies and His mass delusions. We are free. There was a, I was doing some reading this week and Piper has a great illustration on this. He's talking about those who are still captive to the power of Satan. He says they're like jellyfish, man. They're just carried along by the current. And his analogy was that, that born-again believers, born-again believers are like dolphins. Man, we are free and we are fast and we are strong against the current. I love that, I love that analogy. I think that's beautiful. We are no longer in the current of the world. We are in the current of the kingdom of God and we are headed for the celestial city. It reminds me of another episode in uh, the book of Pilgrim's Progress. You remember, I've shared this with you before, Christian and Hopeful were trapped by the giant of despair. And the giant of despair had thrown them in this stinking dungeon uh, for weeks. And he would just come in and beat them and he wouldn't feed them. And Christian and Hopeful were despairing. And then finally Christian remembered, Hey man, I got the key. I've had it all the time. The key was in his bosom. It's called what? Does anybody remember? I'll give you a euro if you remember. Maybe two euros. Do you remember what the, the, the key was called? He had it in his bosom. It was the promise of God. He had it the whole time. Guess what? The key called the promise of God, it unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. Friends, I don't know what your, what your problem is right now, but if you're a Christian tonight, you've got the key. You've got the key. It's called the promise of God. We are no longer captives. We are conquerors in the power of Christ by faith. Verse 1, we were dead... But God is in the manger and He's going to give us God-sized life. Verse 2, we were slaves and captives, but, but God is in that manger and by, by the power of Jesus we are Nike. Lastly, verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath. In so many words, the Bible is telling us, uh, every one of us, that we were hell-bound. We were hell-bound. We deserved it. It was our just desserts. It was our eternal destiny. That's what the phrase means. We were uh, by nature children of wrath. Um, I was telling the men Wednesday night in Bible study that it must grieve God that most of what is called the modern Christian church no longer teaches on God's wrath, no longer teaches on the judgment of God, and no longer teaches on the, uh, the reality of an eternal hell. It must grieve God to no end 
that his so-called ministers are editing him in the pulpit. It must grieve the Holy God. True story, 1989. Martin Mary, professor of University of Chicago Divinity School, was going to give a lecture um, at, uh, at Harvard on hell. And what he did was he went and consulted the indexes of scholarly journals dating back over 100 years. Guess what he found? Guess how many entries he found? He found no entries. It's almost like hell has been forgotten. And Jesus spoke and spoke and spoke and spoke about it. And it's like men who are called the ministers of God have chosen to edit God with respect to wrath and judgment in hell. 13% of the verses in the New Testament that record the words of Jesus are about judgment and hell. About half of the 40 parables that Jesus told relate to eternal judgment of sinners. How is it that the pulpit never speaks of it anymore? How is it, friend? Something's wrong here. Something's wrong here when men start to edit the Word of God. Something seriously wrong. Jesus repeatedly and graphically talked about the reality of hell, being a child of wrath. And friends, if you don't understand this, you can't really understand the joy of God being in the manger. We deserved judgment. Jesus talked like this. Now, this is not the harpings, the hostile harpings of a, of a country preacher. These are the words of the incarnate living God. Listen to what He says. The whole body will be thrown into hell. Eternal punishment and with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal and unquenchable fire. In the outer, outer darkness where the worm never dies. These are not, the again, the harpings of a, of a preacher gone awry. These are the merciful warnings of the living God. And shame on any, any pastor, any preacher who doesn't have the moral integrity uh, uh, to stand in the pulpit and tell you and warn you that hell is real. Jesus said it. These are not the words of Jim. These are the words of the living God. Jesus said it. And Jesus said, you are by nature a child of wrath. You deserve that, but I'm in the manger. I've come to redeem my people. May I say just parenthetically, that if you ever find yourself, I know that most of you are passing through, most of you are leaving. You, you guys come and you go and you leave us and you never call, you never write. <laughs> sometimes you call, sometimes you write. But let me just, I just want to say this to you. For those of you who are passing through, if you ever find yourself in a church that has discarded, discounted, or is ignoring God's explicit truth about wrath, judgment, and hell, you need to run from that church as fast as you can. It is no longer a biblical church. It is a false church. You may remember what we talked about over in 1 John. Any church that no longer holds fast to the Word of God uh, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in that place and you need to get out of there. You need to go to a church where the Word of God is opened and taught unedited. So when you go and you leave this place, you go find you a church that actually trembles before the Word of God and doesn't play fast and loose with it. Verse 3, God says, You and I were hell-bound. We'd earned our wages we deserved infinite and eternal wrath, but God. 
but God. Verse 4. Look at this, how, how the Holy Spirit led Paul to pile up superlatives here in verse 4 and in verse 7. He's rich in mercy. He's great in love. He's going to sh show us the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness. He's just piling up the superlatives. He wants you to know this, Christian friend. Your comfort, your joy is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're going to understand Christmas at all, you need to understand this text. If you don't understand Ephesians chapter 2, you've never really experienced Christmas. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were captive, but now you're free. You were doomed, but now you're seated in the heavenlies with God. Friends, that's what Christmas is about. God's in a manger, and He's come to save His people. And I'm going to call you to worship this year like you've never worshipped before. Really worship this awesome Redeemer, Creator God who's come for His people, laid His life down. Really worship this awesome thing that He has done. You may remember over in Romans, Paul says, Paul, you remember what Paul says about us in Romans? He says, we were thankless, we were rebellious, we were arrogant, we were God-ignorers, we were God-haters, we were helplessly captive to sin and death, we were ungodly, we were the enemies of God. This is the condition of natural man. We had earned our wages, we deserved infinite and eternal wrath, but God's in a manger and He's come for His people. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. What an awesome God. Don't you dare let this Christmas go by and, you, and let it just be some small thing to you. you. Let me encourage you. You need to spend some time alone with the Lord and just be in awe that He's loved you like this. Don't you dare let Christmas go by and not be in awe and not be in wonder about this awesome God, you know, it's not just like, it's not, it's not just that, that He spared us in some impersonal way. It's not like this is some edict uh, uh, from an aloof, remote uh, monarch. It's not just some routine legal or ju judicial uh, maneuver by a disinterested sovereign. He's in that manger and He's going to that cross. He's invested in this. He's radically loved His people. He's extravagantly loved His people. Let me ask you, how are you radically and extravagantly loving Him back? You know, that's the whole call of the New Testament. That's the whole call of the New Testament. God's fully invested in this relationship. Let me ask you, how invested are you in this relationship? It's the only reasonable response to Jesus Christ. is to invest wholly and fully all of your life in Him. It's God in a manger. For although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of men. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Beloved, who is a God like ours? Who is a God that loves like this? There is no God like Him. There is no God like Him. God came for us personally. He didn't send some subordinate or some underling or some aide. God came for His people. God did it. He came for us personally. Not only has He personally delivered us, get this, He's personally adopted us. 
mm, man, I, 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 it's hard for me, you know, this superficial Christianity thing. It's like, if it's, super, if it's a superficial thing in your life, you've not heard it yet, you've not understood it yet. It can't be superficial. It can't be some little bitty thing in your life. If it's some little bitty thing in your life, friend, I want to challenge you to repent because you've not really fully understood the gospel at all. How can you not be moved? How can you not be moved by this awesome God? And then God says stuff like this. He says, I've chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. He says, I have freely given you all things. God says, I rejoice in doing good to you. God says, you are co-heirs with my son. That's what's going on in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He's coming for his people. And he's given us everything. Every good thing. He doesn't withhold any good thing from his children. So I want to ask you, Christian friend, how can you not be staggered by this truth? How can these truths not take your breath away? How can you not fall hopelessly in love with this awesome God? How can you not fully and completely give yourself away to Him? How can you not live every day of your life trusting, obeying, and worshiping Him? I submit to you that if you really believe that God is in the manger, your life will be radically different from the person who doesn't believe that. Two or three weeks from now, millions of people who only come to church once or twice a year will pour into churches professing to believe that that's God in a manger. But you can tell they don't really believe. You know how you can tell they don't really believe? Because their life has never changed. Friends, I'm telling you if, you, if you believe that God is in that manger, your life has changed and you're never going to go back. This world is too small for you. You're on your way to the celestial city to be with your Lord and with your God. You can't continue to live like the world. You won't do it. You can't do it. You will need not to do it. You will be hot on the heels of the living God. And no area of your life will remain untouched or unchanged if you really believe that God is in that manger. You will in some measure have the the confession of Paul. You remember Paul is, and I'm just about finished. I think I'm doing okay. You may remember... Paul was a perfect Jew. He was, he was quite proud of being a Pharisee. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was at the top of the food chain in Israel. But listen to what happened to him when, he, when Jesus Christ invaded his life. Listen to the confession of Paul, Philippians chapter 3, 7, and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I, had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but dung, according to the King James Version, in order that I may gain Christ. This is what Christmas rightly understood looks like in a life. That's Christmas rightly understood. Paul is sharing that with us. So my point is this. If you believe God is in a manger, you will live like God is in a manger. If you say you believe that God is lying in that manger, you will live your life uh, in accordance with the dictates of that God lying in that manger. If you believe it, if you say you believe it, you'll really live it. 
That's what the New Testament tells us. It won't be abstract. It won't be academic. It won't be theoretical. It will be radically life-altering for the balance of your days. Just look at the New Testament. Men and women who really believed that God was in the manger. Listen to these examples. I'm just going to give you a few and I'm done. Life-altering faith. Matthew, John, Andrew, and the rest. They just left their careers. They left their businesses. They left their job. They followed the living God. Life-altering obedience. Joseph took Mary as his wife. Life-altering repentance. Zacchaeus refunded four times what he had defrauded. And he gave half of his wealth to the poor. Life-altering trust. Yeah, Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water. Life-altering deeds. Paul, who was persecuted at every turn, planted churches in Asia Minor and in Europe. Life-altering giving. Those crazy Macedonians gave from their deep poverty. Life-altering ministry. Stephen was martyred for his... uh, Bold preaching and life-altering worship. Mary of Bethany broke that vial. A year's worth of wages simply to worship her Lord Jesus. That's what it looks like if we really believe God's in the manger. That's what Christmas looks like. It looks like lives that have been given away to this awesome, beautiful Redeemer God. That's what it looks like when we really understand Christmas. So, I'm calling you to a radical response to Christmas this year. I would be guilty of the worst kind of malpractice if, as your pastor, I did not call you to a radical and extravagant response to what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. I would be no kind of pastor at all if I didn't stand up here and exhort you to radically and extravagantly live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I am calling you to do. Life is too short for me to preach this awesome gospel small. And life is too short for you to live this awesome gospel small. So go out and live it for the glory of our awesome Creator, Redeemer, Warrior, Shepherd, God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are in awe. We're in awe of who You are and what You've done. Thank You for this Word. Father, help us to really grab hold of what Christmas means. May we own it in our hearts. May it change every aspect of our life. May we live it out for the balance of our days. Lord, forgive us if we have uh, let Christmas pass, Christmases in the past go by and not just simply be in awe and rejoice in what a great God You are, what a great Savior You are, what a great Redeemer You are. Oh God, bless this time as we come to Your table that we may celebrate and remember the price that You paid to redeem Your people. We praise You and love You, Lord Jesus. Amen. We have open communion here. All who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in believers' baptism, you're welcome to partake of the table. What, what we do here is Adam will play a, a, a song. It probably lasts three or four minutes. Prepare your hearts to come and partake of the table. Uh, come up and take a cup, take a piece of bread, go back to your seat. And when Adam uh, stops playing, then I will stand and read a text and we will partake at that time. Okay?